Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 72. If you're using one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that on page 485. We're going to read the entire psalm. Tried to find a good place to break it up and it just didn't work. So we're going to, we're going to look at the whole psalm uh, in our reading, about 20 verses. I'm going to tell you up front that the inscription at the top of Solomon is uh, the Hebrew prepositions do a lot of different work and can be translated in lots of different ways. It could be translated uh, to Solomon, uh, of Solomon, about Solomon, for Solomon. And as you'll see at the end, it's written by David, his father. Really, it's for Solomon. And so I'm going to read it that way. And I think you'll hear it's It's meaning more clearly. To Solomon, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings bow down, fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and And him who has no helper, he has pity on the weak and on the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessing invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land, on the tops of the mountains may it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, may his fame continue as long as the sun, may people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray that he'd be pleased to meet us in it this morning. Our gracious God, you who dwell within the pages of your word, we long to know you. We long to see you revealed within your scriptures. Open to us the beauty of your word. Open our eyes and our hearts to behold the King of glory and give us faith to receive all that we see in your word. Amen. You may be seated.
I, I think that most of us don't really get the idea of the family business anymore. Uh, it used to be that children pretty much knew what their occupation would be. From the earliest of days, it would be whatever their parents did, whatever their dad did. They would grow up working with him, working for him. They would apprentice under him, learn the skills that they would need, and one day they would take over the family business. Now, there are still some small businesses that are passed on from one generation to another, but even these are growing more rare, and more children in our current generation are telling their parents they don't want the family business. They have their own interests, dreams, and aspirations. They don't want to be tied down. They don't want their future determined for them. They don't want to be shackled to a legacy they didn't choose. There is one family business that's quite difficult to quit. It's when you're born into the royal family. It's not impossible. The Queen of England is only queen because her uncle, in 1936, yeah, she's been queen for a while, uh, uh, abdicated the throne to his younger brother, the Queen's father, and he forever changed the royal line and the order of succession. It's possible, but it's rare. Royalty is a family business like no other. The eldest son born to the king and queen is the future king by birthright. From his earliest days, he's being trained, shaped, prepared for his future job as ruler of the nation. And while that might sound exciting on one hand, it must also be absolutely overwhelming on the other hand especially in former generations where the responsibilities of the king were greater than they are now. To know that your whole nation's freedom, prosperity, security, and success were were dependent upon your ability to rule well. That would be an awful burden for anyone to carry. And no one understood that burden better than King David. Psalm 72 is the prayer of a father that he has written for his son as he ascends the throne. The inscription at the top of Solomon, as I said, uh, can also be translated for Solomon about Solomon, to Solomon. And this is the last psalm, we're told, that David ever wrote. It's not the last one we'll read in the psalms. The psalms aren't arranged chronologically. But it's the last one he wrote, and he wrote it for his son as he yielded the kingdom in his old age to his son. And it reveals the heart of a king as he approaches the end of life his reflections on his own life and his own rule, his deepest hopes for his son as he takes over this awesome responsibility of ruling over not just any nation, any kingdom, but the one special and dear to God's own heart. Its placement in the Psalms is important. The previous three psalms that we've been looking at for the last few weeks are full of prayers for protection 
and deliverance for God's people, for the needy and the oppressed. They beg God for justice and protection from their enemies. And Psalm 72 comes as a sort of answer, God's answer in the form of a king who is able to deliver and protect God's people because he's good and he's strong and he's unmovable. And really, that's what we're going to see in this psalm. If we could, could sum it up in this way, it's this. The only hope for the needy is a king who is just, who is powerful, and who can never be removed from power. The only hope for God's people, for the needy, is a king who is good and just, who is strong and powerful, and who will always be around. That's what we want to see uh, in our psalm as we meditate upon it for just a few minutes this morning. Uh, These three qualities form the substance of David's prayer. The first seven verses are about justice. Verse 1, God, give your king justice and righteousness to your royal son. As the king's son ascends the throne, as, as my boy becomes your king, Let him have your justice, your righteousness. This is is the father's hope for his son as he ascends the throne, that his son will be good. He knows all too well how easy it is to be corrupted by power and to use it for personal gain. To give preferential treatment to those who are wealthy, those who have influence and can return favors to the king. He knows how easy it would be to neglect, abuse, and even oppress those who are poor and insignificant. He knows that such is a recipe for disaster. A king cannot serve himself and his people. He must choose. He is to serve the people, or he is there to, or they are there to serve him. And a king who believes that the people are there to serve him will rob the land of its wealth and his insatiable lust for power and adoration. He will rob its treasuries, he will strip its resources. and the people will grow hungry, they will grow poor powerless and exposed. But a good king, a just king, one who possesses the very justice of God, as David's prayer goes on, what does he say will happen? The people, verse 4, will be defended. Verse 5, those who rise up against God's people will learn to fear this king. Verses 3 and 7, the land will be full of blessings. And and this really gets at the dual responsibilities of a ruler. He has what we might call a foreign policy. He's he's supposed to protect his people from the dangers of enemies, from, from foreign threats. But he's also supposed to have a domestic policy, how he rules over the people within the borders. So that corruption and abuse do not arise 
and destroy the nation like a cancer from within. Both require a heart that loves what is good and what is right. And this is, this is where David's prayer begins as his son Solomon ascends the throne. Because he knows that without a heart that loves justice, there is no hope for the people and for the land. But a good heart is not enough. And so verses 8 through 14 turn to the need for strength, power. A king who desires to stand up to the enemies but is unable to can't help. And so David's prayer is that his son would have a strength that is respected far and wide throughout the earth. He says in verse 11, May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. Then he will be able to deliver the people when they cry out to him for help. Verse 12. This won't just bring protection. This will bring prosperity. David knows that when nations fear and respect the king in Israel, they will bring gifts of tribute. Israel will become even more prosperous as the riches from other lands pour in. David even sets his eyes on particular lands, Tarshish, Seba, and Sheba. And these lands were known for being rich in gold and spices and things like frankincense and oils like myrrh. And all kinds of rich spices. David knows that if his son is good and strong, these things will come to him. The kings of the other lands will voluntarily come and lay these gifts at his feet. And sure enough, it happened. Second Chronicles tells us this, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his presence, articles of silver and of gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. When the queen of Sheba came in 1 Kings chapter 10, she was amazed by his wisdom. And then she said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne in Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. You can hear the echoes of our psalm in her words. Look at how this land loves what is good. Look how God's justice and righteousness are manifested. God has truly blessed the people in making you king. And it goes on to report in 1 Kings 10 that then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. The very land that David had prayed in Psalm 72. 
Justice was good. Strength was necessary. But David knew that something more was needed. Unless Solomon's rule was long, these benefits would be short-lived. And so his final prayer in verse 15 is for a long life. He knows all too well how easy it is for a new ruler to rise up and undo all the good his predecessor did in no time flat. And so as Solomon takes on the family business, David prays that he will not have to hand it off too soon to another. It's almost prophetic. As famous as Solomon's, uh, as, Sol- as famous as Solomon was for his wisdom, so famous was his son Rehoboam for his folly. In one generation, he brought oppression, poverty, and civil war. Psalm 72 is a beautiful prayer. It shows humility and understanding. David hands over power before he dies. He surrenders it. He's not clinging to his power. He's not trying to preserve his legacy and and sort of undermine his successor so that he would never be as well-loved and respected as David. He honestly longs for the well-being of the kingdom as he draws near to the grave. But I can't help but think this must have been overwhelming for Solomon. As wonderful as this prayer is, it also underscores just how high the calling is to be king over God's people. Can you imagine hearing this as the one taking the throne? It's a job like no other. The responsibility is overwhelming. Everyone is depending on you. The responsibility he must have felt must have been paralyzing and overwhelming. And well, it should be. Because what he was being called to was to really be a reflection of God himself to the people. Because God is perfectly just, absolutely good. He is infinitely powerful. And God is eternal. When he set down the guidelines for future kings in Israel in Deuteronomy... He said and he made it clear that they were to be servants as they ruled over God's people. Their rule was to to reflect God's and they were limited by God's word. They weren't free to do whatever they wanted. Their job was to serve, not to be served. And God made it clear that he would be the one to hold them accountable. Now, sadly, the the good report that we read about Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10, where the kings come and they bow down and give gifts, and the queen of Sheba brings the biggest gift of gold ever received by Israel, that good report quickly faded as you turn the page into 1 Kings chapter 11. And as Solomon began to grow arrogant and turn from the Lord, 
by the time we get to 1 Kings 12, those nations that once brought gifts of tribute to Israel return only this time to oppress Israel. Eventually, that entire nation didn't happen in Solomon's time, but it did eventually happen. The entire nation was taken into slavery. And God tells us why in Ezekiel 34. It's because the leaders of Israel served themselves and not God's people. The simple reality is that every king in Israel and Judah fell far short of the ideal laid forth in Psalm 72. They all became selfish. They all abused their power. And they all brought trouble upon the nation which suffered for their king's folly. And then, they died. Every single one of the kings of Israel lies silent in the grave today, unable to help the people any longer. No earthly king could be the hope of God's people. They could only be reflections of God's character for a little while. They might be tools that he used for his people for good, but they could not truly be the hope. God alone could be the hope of his people. And that's why this prayer for Solomon is directed to God. And that's why it culminates in verses 18 and 19 with a statement of confidence in God's goodness and global rule. In a very real way, our psalm creates attention, doesn't it? On the one hand, it teaches us to look for hope and deliverance and security in a king. And on the other hand, it can't avoid the reality that no mere mortal, no mere descendant of David can truly save the people of God. See, this family business stuff is tricky. But there was one. One of David's descendants was like no other. He wasn't even conceived in ordinary ways. He had no earthly father, but was conceived through miraculous intervention. A young maiden named Mary was given the privilege of carrying this descendant of David in her womb. And then one night, while traveling back to a city known for its most famous son, her womb could wait no longer. They pulled over to an inn that was already full. She gave birth in a stable. Imagine her surprise when kings from distant lands showed up to pay tribute to her son. And what did they bring? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
the very things Tarshish and Sheba and Seba were known for. Perhaps these kings were from those lands. We don't know. But how the words of Psalm 72 must have flooded to Mary's mind. Has David's greater son arrived? Had God indeed sent the true king, the better David, the better Solomon? Would he be the one to do what they could not accomplish? Would he be good and incorruptibly so? Would he be powerful but use his power in the service of the lowly? And would he be the one that could never be conquered by the grave so that the benefits of his rule and reign would not be temporary but would be enjoyed forever? Indeed, that's exactly what Jesus would do. And every wise ruler in this world that has ever ruled, every, every wise king or queen has bowed his or her knee to Jesus knowing that he is, is the ruler of all rulers, the king of all kings. That he is greater than any earthly ruler. Those who have placed their hope in him have known what true goodness is. But his rule came with surprises. I think it's our temptation, the natural inclination when we read Psalm 72 and and this power which inspires fear in other kings. We kind of get this idea of, of a great military leader constantly decked out in military uniform, projecting the image of strength and power and even intimidation. But is that why these rulers, these kings, came and laid gifts at his feet? He was probably less than 10 pounds. Unable to speak. He could not rule. He was meek and helpless. But he was good. And so they could see beyond his outward appearance. And they knew that his power lay not in physical strength, but in something much deeper. And this, more than anything, would be what would confuse the world. Our world knows how to bow to bullies, those who wield physical power but we struggle to admire and respect true power, power so great that the one who hasn't isn't threatened by serving the lowest of his subjects, who doesn't flinch at wrapping himself in a servant's towel and washing his subject's feet. But Jesus made this explicit. He said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Because he understood perfectly what it means to be a leader in God's house, in God's kingdom, in God's family. 
And it's for precisely this reason that he was exalted. As Philippians says, he took the form of a servant, even laying down his life for his people. And then it concludes with this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Can you hear the language of Psalm 72? That name above every name to which all must bow? Can you see how Jesus alone can be the hope of Psalm 72? In Jesus Verse 17 is perfectly married to verses 18 and 19. In, in Jesus, we can bless both the king, verse 17, and the God of Israel, verses 18 and 19, because in Jesus, we have both the son of David and the God of David. In Jesus, we have both king and servant. In him is perfect deliverance, and perfect peace. He alone can answer the prayers of Psalms 69 and 70 and 71. He is worthy of carrying on the family business to all eternity. Now there's a temptation that we need to avoid. The temptation in reading Psalm 72 is to be overwhelmed with the family business and want out, or to hear about Jesus and to wipe your sweaty brow and say, phew, I'm so glad I don't have to do that. And of course, both of those temptations are valid to a point. But there's a danger in thinking that Psalm 72 doesn't call you to respond in obedience, to think that you are exempt from the family business, that this is someone else's family to which you aren't tied and obligated and apart. His final words to his disciples must be remembered at all times. After the cross, after the resurrection, the moment before he ascended and returned to heaven, Jesus said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And we think, ah, good. That's what Psalm 72 said would happen. And we'd be right. But then he said, as for you, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The rule and the authority of Jesus doesn't undermine our participation in the family business. It establishes it. God uses imperfect instruments in his perfect rule. He doesn't set aside earthly leaders, but he invites them into his perfect plan. Some of his sons are called to serve their father in a unique way as pastors and elders and deacons. He uses them to 
protect the afflicted, to feed the hungry, to strengthen the weak. And that's why leaders in the church are are held to such a high accountability. They're called to be servants of those over whom they lead. They must not pursue office for selfish gain. They must pursue what is good because they serve him who is good. The temptation to abuse authority in the church is great. Some of God's sternest rebukes are reserved for those who abuse authority. Pray for your leaders that they would not be arrogant, but they would be your servants. That doesn't mean that this call to humility and service is reserved only for those called to leadership in the church. Every son or daughter has a place in the family business. In a few weeks, Pastor Brian's going to preach on Philippians 2. Where the description of Jesus' service and exaltation are introduced with these words. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also yours in Christ Jesus. That command is for every single one of us. There is only one king, but if you are a child of that king, you are royalty. And there are expectations on the royal family. You all bear the name and honor of the royal family. You are all in the family business. And so you're called to reflect the king with dignity. You're called to love what is good. To count others as more important than yourself. You are called to serve in ways that reflect the king who laid down his life for his subjects. And that's a high calling. It's weighty. Indeed, it's overwhelming. God is at work within you. Right after Philippians calls you to this daunting goal of being like King Jesus, Paul says these words, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. High calling, confidence in God. God calls you to an insurmountable goal and then strengthens you to achieve it. As Augustine famously prayed, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Beloved children of the king, this is your calling. Now, if you're going to respond in obedience, you're going to need your strength. And what did mom always say before you left for a big day? You'll need your strength, 
eat a good meal. It's good counsel. Mom's counsel is usually good. But what you need is more, so much more than physical strength. You need moral strength, courage, and character. You need to remember who Jesus is and that he is in you, strengthening you so that you might accomplish what he has called you to, so that you might walk in a manner worthy of a son or a daughter of the king. If only there was a meal you could eat that could remind you of all of these things. Where you could come and partake and strengthen your soul for what lies ahead of you this week. If only there was a table set where the king invited you to to dine with him before sending you out into the world in his name where the sacrificial death of of the servant king was visibly portrayed, where your call to take up your cross and follow him was, was communicated. But that's exactly what lies before us. As we come to the Lord's Supper, Jesus feeds you on his grace to strengthen you for what lies ahead. And so let us come. And eat the fare of kings, knowing that we have family business to attend to. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward as we prepare to receive uh, this meal this morning. And please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call you that. That you have called us to be your own, that we are heirs of your kingdom. And we know that this comes with a great responsibility. We represent you in this world. And so we should conduct ourselves as is fitting for heavenly royalty. But Father, we fall so short. And so we thank you that your son came into this world and did did what no earthly king could do. He rescued us and he delivered us. For he is good and he is powerful and he lives forever and his reign will never come to an end. Help us, we pray to walk in a way that is pleasing to you. Make us more like Jesus. Help us to love what is good, to serve one another. All of this we ask in that most precious of names, the name above all other names, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.